welcome. Glad to see everybody, but it's always great to see new faces that we haven't seen before. And uh, if, if you're new and don't know where something is or how things operate, we'd be glad to, to help you in any way that we can. Um, but last week we started a new series, and it's on the second book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark. And I, I mentioned this last week, but my, my hope when I started here at Downtown Prez and my hope for however many years that God gives me here would be that every four years we uh, come back to a gospel. And so my first fall here, we did the gospel of Luke. And then fall of 09, we did the gospel of John. And we were up for our next uh, rotation, we'll call it. So we're looking at the gospel of Mark this fall. So we just started last week. And and, uh, if you weren't here, don't worry about it. Just jump in where we are. A few weeks ago, I guess it was about a month ago, I heard an interview on a podcast, it was an interview with a man who is the chief of neuroscience or or, uh, neurosurgery at the University of Toronto, and he's done this pioneering work on deep brain stimulation. Now, this gets into areas that I have no expertise of, but I'll I'll try to convey what I heard. He talked about the fact that, that in different health problems, you'll see the brain in these areas that are either dialed up too high or dialed down too low. And with all kinds of, you know, different health problems, there's different areas of the brain that are overworking or underworking. And his experimentation has been to, to use these circuits to stimulate these areas of the brain. He said it's almost like you're going in and finding the naughty neurons and kind of like tapping them on the shoulder and saying, gentlemen, we're going to behave now. And he gave some, some amazing examples of the results that they had found. He said it's not always 100%, but the area that, that uh, really struck me was when he talked about treating people that had what he called treatment-resistant depression. Now, I would never want to be flippant about any kind of depression, especially if, if you have experienced it or lived with somebody who has. So it, it's not like anybody's depression feels like normal depression or, or garden-variety depression. But he's talking about there's about 10% of, of people with depression have something that it just will not respond to anything. It won't respond to medicine. It won't respond to counseling. It won't respond to other kinds of uh, treatments. And so that was, that was where they were experimenting. And so they targeted the areas of the brain. And the area that was overworking, as you would expect, was sadness. The part of the brain that lights up when you're sad just was lit up with these patients all the time. The part that was dialed down too low were areas like motivation and decision-making and what we would call just just drive, you know, getting up and going in the morning. And he said that with about two-thirds of the patients that they've treated with this stimulation, literally, when when they turn that on, within seconds, people would look up and you would see this expression on their face of looking around the room And they would try to verbalize that it was as if they had been in a black cloud and the cloud just went away, just immediately. And 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 the the part that just almost, you know, got me choked up listening to it was when he uh, said that a man will look up and say, you know, I think I want to go home and work in my yard. He's hardly been able to get out of bed for, what, five years. Or uh, a woman would say, you know, there's some things that I've really been meaning to do around the house. You just immediately... They're in a healthy place. And what struck me about that is that, you know, in so much of medicine, 
you, you, even when you have success, even when there's a healing, it's gradual. You know, you have to have preparation for a surgery, then the surgery itself, and then the healing process, and then to see how it went, or medicine has to you know, treat you over time. It's so rare that something's done for someone's sickness, and then they're just better. And in the Gospels, when Jesus Christ would heal somebody, it was the latter. And there's one time where just kind of over maybe a few minutes he worked somebody to a certain point. But still, when, it, when he would touch someone or even... He didn't even have to touch them. He, there's instances where he does it from a distance. They were just healed better. Now, on the one hand, that's so wonderful. And something that we said last week, if you weren't here, is that the best scholarship I've seen dates the Gospel of Mark as being written in around the mid-50s A.D., and the reason that's so significant, it means that it's written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. In other words, that these are just kind of mythic accounts that are trying to get you to think a certain thing about this figure named Jesus. It just wouldn't have, it just wouldn't have caught on. There'd be too many eyewitnesses to say, that's, just, that's not what happened. But they, were written, it, they are written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. So, yeah, they saw him going around healing publicly. Have you ever wondered, why did he not do that constantly? In other words... Why did he not just heal everybody? What, in, instead of putting a dent in disease in Judea, why did he not eradicate disease from Judea? And in some ways, this passage is a window into answering that question. And the thing is, this passage has an amazing physical healing in it. But this is the big thing. You're seeing Jesus, even as he's being compassionate about somebody's real physical bodily needs... You're seeing him deal with the great need. It's the great need that he came from heaven to earth to address. Mark chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, We ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of 
all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. We've got some faces that have been here a while. We've got a lot of new faces, uh, so a lot of you would not know this, but the, the first worship service we had in this building, it took us the better part of a year to renovate this place, was June 1st, 2008, and it was a very special Sunday. It was kind of a, sort of a, a benchmark for our young church. And the text that I preached on that morning was this text, Mark chapter 2. And this is a little bit different sermon. And as I told the 830 service, I still stand by the June 1st sermon of 2008. I'm just a, um, and this one holds hands with it, I think, agrees with it, but changed a few things. But uh, the reason I wanted to preach on that is just the, the more you see Jesus in the Gospels, you'll see that He is addressing what He understands to be people's greatest need. Now, what he understands to be people's greatest need may not be what they perceive to be their greatest need. You know, we talk about there's felt needs and unfelt needs. And sometimes, at least from Jesus' point of view, your greatest need is unfelt by you. And that could very much be the case this morning. I mean, it may be that you're here and it's somewhat unusual. And it might be highly unusual that you're in church, that you're in a sanctuary in a worship service listening to a sermon. But that you're here... Maybe because you're saying, I, I just I strongly feel right now in my life that spirituality is the big unresolved thing in my life, and I'm trying to get at what what is going on with me and what do I think about God and what is going on between us. And if that's the case, that's amazing. And I, we'd love that you're here. But it may be that you're here and you're very familiar with Christianity and you're very familiar with the Bible, and really you may be saying, Look, I believe in that stuff, I think it's great. In fact, I think ultimately it's the most important thing in the world. But I'm telling you, the main thing for me right now is uh, unemployment or underemployment or I have a parent who is deteriorating and just all this labor-intensive process of walking them through that falls on my shoulders and that's on top of everything else I have to do. It could be that I hurt all the time. It could be that I'm in a relationship and it's just, it is so yuck that it just flavors everything, and that, that is my great need right now. Now, wherever you are, the, the wonderful thing about this passage is when you see a paralytic drop down in front of somebody, you don't have to scratch your head about, hmm, I wonder what he thinks his main need is. I mean, he knows. And the room thinks they know. And that's not what Jesus responds to at first. And so what I want to look at is this theme of Jesus in this, in this episode, in this account, highlighting what our greatest need is. Not just the needs of the people in that room, but for us. Mark wrote this down for the reader. We're the readers. And I want to look at three things. Jesus is highlighting our great need by three things. By first, teaching or preaching. Second, by forgiving. And then third, by proving We'll unpack that third one when we get to it. But, but teaching, forgiving, and then proving. And the first one, teaching. Look at how the text starts. He returned to Capernaum. Now, you know, he grew up in Nazareth, so we think of that as being his hometown. But uh, at some point, the Gospels say he 
relocated and, and established a residence in Capernaum. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it, it was reported that he was at home. And then verse 2, And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. Why is... We don't know who, whose house this is. Is it his house or some people think Peter's house? We, we don't know. Why is the house so packed out? And if you look at the passages in Mark right before this, so kind of the latter half of chapter 1, Jesus is healing people. And again, think about the kind of healing I described at the beginning. This is not, okay, I'm going to put my hand on your head and pray over you, and then we're going to see what happens over the next month. No one had to wait. Boom, they're healed. And you know, if somebody can just touch or speak at terminally sick people and make them better, they will never lack for company. So people start coming in droves and they find out that he's at this house and they just, uninvited, you know, show up. I'm sure some of them are sick or they bring people who are sick and the house is packed out. Is Jesus having a healing service? Very significant. What does verse 2 say? Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. Now, I, I, I just want to emphasize this because this overlaps with something that we saw last week. Last week, we looked at the beginning of this gospel. God sends John the Baptist to get the people ready for the Messiah. How does he get the people ready for the Messiah? John the Baptist preaches and baptizes. And then Jesus comes and he starts, or he goes public. And he begins his ministry by doing what? Preaching. And then he sets apart 12 of his disciples as apostles and he unleashes them on Judea. And what do they do? They preach and cast out demons. And then after he's crucified and risen from the dead, and he unleashes the apostles on the whole earth, the whole world, what does he send them to go do? To preach. Here's here's what a couple of writers said. This is a book that came out a couple of years ago called What is the Mission of the Church? Because that question does not have consensus for an answer. Lots of different Christians would describe the mission, the big job description of the church, as being all kinds of different things. Well, as they're seeking to answer that question, the the authors say this, Don't miss this fact. There is not a single example of Jesus going into a town with the stated purpose of healing or casting out demons. He never ventured on a healing and exorcism tour. He certainly did a lot of this along the way, but the focus of his ministry is on teaching. The hearts of his teaching, the heart of his teaching centers on who he is, and the good news of who he is culminates in where he is going to the cross. More on that in a little bit. And I just, you know, I, I want to at least mention this in passing. Should just rhetorically speaking, should downtown Prez occasionally just say, we're not going to have a Sunday service. We're not going to gather to sing or pray, and we're not going to have a sermon. We, we already get enough of that. We're just going to kind of unleash you, and let's get out there, and let's do some good on Sunday morning, find ways to volunteer, find ways to, to get your hands dirty. Here's the thing. As a church, we desperately want to get out there. We desperately want you to get out there and get your hands dirty and serve. We end our worship service by saying, let's go out there, literally, and serve and love our city uh, the way Christ has loved us and in His name. 
But the reason we're not going to stop doing what we're doing is we're following Jesus' model and the apostles' model. That there was worlds and worlds of hurt and sickness and poverty and need out there. You talk about felt needs. How about first century Judaism? And Jesus knew it. He grew up with poor parents, that he was not a bystander. He knew it from the inside out. And he is teaching. You know, there's something about people, there's something about us, that we have to constantly come back to, what is my greatest need? Because we'll think we know it. And as God speaks into our lives from His Word, it will often say, no, it's not what you're, it's not what you're feeling that it is right now. You're so crushed by this relationship. You're so tired of being un- unemployed or underemployed. You're so tired of feeling bad that it feels like, I don't care what anybody says, that's my greatest need. And God has to speak into our lives again and say, no, I know that's so important, but your greatest need is something else. Well, what is it? And this is addressed directly in the second one. Jesus is going to highlight the greatest need by what he says and does to this paralytic. Now, this, you know, this is a famous story, and we've already read it. But look back in verse 3. They came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And every time I, I teach or preach on this, I just I can't help but think that these were teenagers or either like 18 to 22-year-olds. It just has that feel to it. They have a friend. The evidence seems to be that he's a young man by what Jesus calls him. And, you know, there's different levels of being a paralytic. His experience of it is that he cannot crawl or hobble his way to Jesus on his own. That's significant. He He is constrained by his condition. And so these friends, they have heard the rumor mill about what this Jesus of Nazareth can do. And then they hear that he's in the area. And just impetuous, you know, at the moment they go, we're taking him. And so whether he was on a mat or they find a mat, they put him on there, and I guess each one gets a corner, and they they hoof it to this house, and they get there, and it's packed out. You cannot even get in the door because of all the people listening to Jesus. Do what? Teach. In a first century Judean house in the Galilee, you'd probably, there'd probably be some steps up the side, so they go up the side. It's just amazing to think about somebody said, you know, they looked, they looked at the packed room, and you probably had the pessimist like me that went, man, I guess, we, I guess he doesn't get healed. And then you had people who are not like me that look at the roof and go, I don't know about that. You know, kind of more than one way to skin a cat. So they go up the side of the house, most likely, a house in Galilee at that time would have a roof made of uh, thatched mud, dried thatched mud. So don't picture like neat roofing tiles being, being removed. Jesus is preaching, and then all of a sudden you hear, <coughs> and as somebody who preaches on a regular basis, I can tell you, you know, you get distractions. Uh, somebody walks out in front of everybody and all the eyes track them, or someone has a, a child that's screaming and they walk out with them. And by the way, if you ever walk out with a screaming child, we will never stop you. <laughs> ever. And possibly will compliment you. 
But, uh, but you know, usually you can kind of play through that and get, kind of a little bit get up over it or kind of reel people back, but there's just no way to get past this. Think about the visuals of it, that you're in, you're in this house and there's just this banging and then all of a sudden skylight bursts through and just like sand and mortar comes down. So those people back up and this hole develops and then it goes dark again and then this, this mat comes down in front of Jesus. And, and I, again, I don't want to read into the text, but it just, it can't not be the case, double negative, that there wasn't the moment where Jesus makes eye contact with the young man and he's looking up helpless and just... This was their idea. I, I, this was not... I didn't wake up with this in mind. But I'm sure, you know, seriously, I'm sure the look of... You know, no one else can do anything, but here we are. So Jesus looks at him. I mean, you talk about cut the tension with a knife. And Jesus looks at him, this paralytic, and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And there have been, I'm sure, centuries worth of sermons and preachers that made the point, "Don't, don't you know that the four friends looking down are thinking the legs we came for the legs what is Jesus doing he is addressing in the person who has his immediate attention his great need his greatest need Sometimes when we read the Gospels, we, we read them like the characters are cartoon characters. You know, they're not like real complex people. And so a sick person is kind of a cartoon sick person. A beggar is kind of a cartoon beggar. That's not how life works. This young man is a paralytic. What is his life like? If he cannot hobble or crawl, given time, to Jesus, almost certainly... His, his prospects for any work to support himself are limited or negated. He cannot walk places. He cannot walk with friends. He cannot travel. He could not have gone out, gone out on his own to see John the Baptist. Most likely could not marry and have a family. It touches everything. What could be bigger to him than that? And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Boy, don't let that pass you by. Because simultaneously when Jesus says that, he is giving to this young man, especially with what what he's about to do next, he's giving that young man the greatest day that he has ever had. But when he says, son, your sins are forgiven, he is giving himself the certainty of the worst day he will ever have. Because what is it going to take for that man's sins to be forgiven. It's going to take what it takes for every man or woman or child's sins to be forgiven for him to absorb what sinners deserve. And he knows that. And he looks at him and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And I want to ask you this before we move on. I mean, I I almost feel like I'm asking in this setting, like, did you know the alphabet starts with ABC? But let me ask the ABC question. Do you believe 
that Jesus of Nazareth can forgive you of anything? Of all your sins? That you could have murdered someone? You could have destroyed someone financially? You could have destroyed a family? You can have misused sexuality and food and drink and gossip and relationships in a million different ways against this you know, landscape of just garden variety selfishness that Jesus can look at a person and say, I have authority to forgive your sins and your sins are forgiven. And before the eyes of the living God, they're all gone? Because that is the good news. That Jesus Christ can forgive you of all your sins. And that that is our greatest need to not only intellectually assent to that, but to receive it and rest in it and experience it and walk in it. Well, he pronounces forgiveness. And and note, he did not say, in the name of God, on his behalf as his teacher and prophet. He says, they're forgiven. And I have the authority to do it. Now, there's the rub. That's the third point is that Jesus highlights our greatest needs by, by proving something. Now, amazing moment. He heals the guy. Look in verse 6. Now, I mean, excuse me, he forgives the guy. Now, verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Are they correct? Absolutely. No one but God can forgive sins. Verse 8, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in His Spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Can we stop and look at that for a second? Do you know how alarming that would be? You know, we've joked about, I don't know when it was, 10 years, 15 years ago, and just WWJD was everywhere. The funny thing about, you know, WWJD, what would Jesus do? That's like the question you're supposed to ask yourself if you're a Christian. Like, how should I respond here? Hmm, what would Jesus do? The tough thing about that question is, well, he might read your mind. And it's tough to replicate that if you're not Jesus. I mean, think how alarming that would be. Just, again, we, we don't know how the room was set up, but let's say that here's Jesus teaching and the mat just came down and he was just speaking to the young man on the mat and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And let's say over here to the, like his left are the scribes. And the text says they didn't say to each other, that's blasphemy, who can forgive sins but God alone. They just thought it in their hearts. And it says that Jesus, perceiving in His Spirit that they said that, turned to them and said, why are you saying that? You know how frightening that would be? For someone just to turn to you and name your thoughts? But He does. And then He asks, this is... This is almost like upping the ante or meeting someone's bluff. He says, all right, tell me, which is easier? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? Because the thing is, if I say that to somebody, it's not like we can really objectively check on it. It's not like we can go up into heaven and look around and go, so what's on the record books here? Are his sins forgiven? We don't know. It's just sort of up there. But if I say, take your mat and get up and walk, we can all see that. There's just an objectivity to that. So, so then he says this, and I, 
I'll tell you this. I love this passage. I've preached on it several times. And this was the detail I've never noticed. I always felt like when he asked that rhetorical question, which is easier, that he's kind of addressing the room? But what does it say in verse 8? Look again. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, to whom? The scribes. And then he says in verse 10, but that you, second person, whom? The scribes may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he did. If you don't know who the scribes are, they, uh, they are not painted in a favorable light in any of the Gospels. These are experts in biblical law and the traditions of the elders. And uh, here's a couple of snapshots. In the next chapter, after, after seeing Jesus do things like this, they're going to tell people that he's possessed by demons. And in the next to the last chapter of the Bible, as, I mean, of Mark, as Jesus is hanging on the cross in agony, they're going to make fun of him and mock him and joke with each other. He said he was going to save Israel. He can't save himself. Those are the scribes. They are, biblically speaking, bad. Why is Jesus singling... The, he, could, he could have read everybody's thoughts, but why is he singling their thoughts out? What a picture of the heart of Jesus Christ. Do you know why I'm telling you that I have authority on earth to forgive sins? Number one, because it's true. And I'm going to do these things publicly. But I'm doing it because you need it too. And I'm sure that I have been guilty of this, but preachers and teachers, when we teach about the scribes or the Pharisees or the religious leaders, we, we make them out to be cartoon characters. But they're not. They're complex characters too. And the relationship between them and Jesus is not a cartoon relationship. It's not like, oh, they all have horns and they all have black cloaks on, and like, woo, they're orcs, and they're the bad ones, and there's the good ones over here. Jesus goes after sinners, and even his hard words, his severe words with them, are to push on what? You need me. You need mercy too. And he's saying to the bad scribes, I have authority to do this. I can actually on earth forgive your sins. Get this, the passage right before this, Jesus heals a leper at the end of Mark chapter 1. And, and sometimes we don't know what to do with this. Jesus is very stern with him. He heals him, touches him, which no one did, and he tells him sternly, get this, go show yourself to the priests as a proof to them. Isn't that amazing? I want them to see First hand. Don't tell anybody else. Go to the priest and show them. I want the priests that are supposed to represent God who traffic in the law and the prophets to know that I am who I am and I can do what I say that I do. Well, what's our proof? Do we get a proof? When you get to the end of the four Gospels and you start the book of Acts... 
Luke, who is all about eyewitnesses and all about accuracy, says, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, that after Jesus died and was raised from the dead, he was seen by all kinds of Christians in all kinds of areas as proofs to them. The reason it's so important that so many people saw the risen Christ in so many different settings, in so many different ways, is that it's God saying, what I say is true, whether you believe it or not, but I want to corroborate visibly to you what I'm saying, that that man can fix your greatest need. And here's, here's my appeal, that... On the one hand, this may be old news to you. You might be thinking, I, good grief, I, I knew that story and knew what it meant in first grade. Well, thank the Lord, that's wonderful. But don't you find that we keep forgetting it? And there, there is this direct correspondence between how bad the bad news is and how good the good news is. I find that I get the most bored with Christianity, even as a minister. And I'm the most on autopilot when I feel that I'm a good person. And I feel that, or I find that when I've really been struck anew with how wicked I can be, then it's fantastic. It's not fantastic if I decide, well, I'll stop being wicked, I will fix my wickedness with non wickedness. Okay, I'll be my own savior. That, that's not fantastic. What's fantastic is for the Son of Man to look at you and say, you're clean. Never stopped loving you. You're clean. Now why don't you live out of that? Perhaps, and I would say highly likely, if we're here this morning and we have a background with these things but we've become jaded, it's, I would say it's strongly likely that somewhere along the line, we stopped really feeling that forgiveness is our great need. It's something else. If you are here, and this is new to you, or, or, you, or let's say you're here and you know that you're not a Christian, hear the gospel writer showing you, or, or see the gospel writer showing you a man looking at all kinds of sinners saying, I have authority on earth to take your sins away. Do not believe the lie that I'm so far gone that God can't do anything with me. That is not God's voice. That is the voice of the enemy or your own attacking conscience. Hear the voice of the Son of Man saying, If you will look to me, the risen Christ, I can and will forgive you of all your sins, even the ones you have not done yet. That is good news. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, please, we pray, enable us to hear you to hear your son that he can bear our guilt he can 
take our stains away. He can, he can take our sins and put them in the deepest part of the ocean, as far as the east is from the west. We would say before you, Lord Jesus, that sometimes we believe that and many times we do not. Or we think that we'll make them go away by behavior modification. Please have mercy on us. That the good news would really get down in our deepest heart of hearts and free us and we would know that we're clean and we would delight in you because you've loved us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.